This is Plausibly Live. Well, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today. Most of them are far beyond our control, you might say. So perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and thought about the laws of gravity, the war in Ukraine, our tax dollars, Kabbalah, food, politics, and or the news. Don't touch that dial. Just try to hear me out for a little while. Well, the good news is, I I was getting worried, I really was, because it had been, what, more than a week at least, since we had announced yet another aid package to Ukraine, but the good news is that this morning, we are announcing another $400 million aid package to Ukraine. Of course, this was all in the news on Thursday, oh, this is coming, this is great, this was after uh, some things went on this week, Janet Yellen, in case you didn't miss, in case you missed this, uh, Janet Yellen is, well, she's not the president, she's not Congress, she's one voter out of 355 million, but she also happens to be Treasury Secretary, went to, um, went to Ukraine this week, last week, I guess, and while she was there, she met with Mr. Zelensky, and she expressed the the position that the United States not only is seemingly grateful to be able to help Ukraine in this war, but that Americans should be eager to do more, to send Ukraine more, because, I don't know, there are any number of explanations for all this as she went there. And of course, the air raid sirens were going off as she's shaking hands with Zelensky, who then went on to make some comments that were rather problematic. Okay. The con, if you're at all on social media, you know this is that Zelensky's, uh, the meme that's going around is that Zelensky said that Americans are going to have to send their children to fight in Ukraine. He did say that, but I'm not comfortable with yelling at him for it because he he had some context that isn't making the memes. It doesn't change the basic point, but there is some context around it. The context around it is that he was saying after this meeting with Janet Yellen, where she promised him another $400 million, that we have to keep paying for their war because if we don't, if we don't, pay for their war so that they can fight their war, then they're going to lose. And if they lose, then the Russians are going to attack NATO countries directly, and that will mean that United States involvement with boots on the ground will happen, and that is your children, American children, will have to go fight uh, against Russian aggression. Contextually, it, it makes a little more sense. I still don't like it. I still don't like the idea that we're doing this. But at the same time, I've said this before, it's a dichotomy for me because I'm, I've spent my entire life, well, most of my life, 
being in opposition to the Russians, particularly the communist Russians. And I'm kind of there again. I mean, I don't care what you say to me about what kind of government it is, an oligarchy, dictatorship, whatever. It's still, it's still a KGB agent running the thing. So it's still communist Soviet Union, Russia. And I am naturally ingrained to want to poke the bear, as they say, with a spoon. But is this the best way to do it? An acquaintance of mine by the name of John Hawkins, who is a blogger, used to run uh, several websites. He's one of those guys that will talk to you at length, if you let him, about how social media killed conservative websites back in the day. Has written an article this past week that I thought was absolutely fascinating. It's called Seven Questions We Should All Be Asking About Ukraine. Now, I'm not going to read you the article. You can read it yourself. I'll link it in the page, in the page description down below. But I just want you to briefly think about these seven questions. Number seven, and I'm going to do them in reverse order because I think they get more important as you go up. Number seven, are we willing to consider a peace treaty with the, that ends the Ukraine war? Now, this is something of a historical thing because if you think about it, we did this in Vietnam. We ended Vietnam with a peace treaty. That peace treaty was not necessarily accepted by our ally. Our ally was South Vietnam, was not really interested in that treaty, but we forced them to sign it, and subsequent events meant problems. If I'm the Ukrainians and they force me to sign this treaty, now the argument is we can't force them to sign a treaty because it's their war, but we're paying for it, so we should have some say in this, right? <sighs> What happens if they sign a treaty that doesn't work? These are questions that we don't have answers to at this point. What happens if Ukraine loses this war? Now, I have said, I'm on record as saying from the very beginning that Ukraine is going to lose this war. I still believe that. I still... You know, we sent a lot of money to Afghanistan. Afghanistan still lost the war. Now, maybe maybe in the end, they drove out the Russians, but they never militarily defeated the Russians. The same in South Vietnam, we lost that war, even though we won every battle there was. What happens if Ukraine loses this war? Since, as John writes, Ukraine is the quote-unquote good guy, they're going to win in the end is what is what most people think, but this is the real world. It's not, it's not a movie. It's not a book. Um, it's entirely possible, he writes, that Russia will come out on top. That may make the war less expensive and more sustainable on our end because it's a lot cheaper to supply weapons, IEDs, Stinger missiles to an insurgency than it is to support an army. From a financial standpoint on our end, since we're the ones paying for it, it might be better off that way. Number five, what are our, the United States, strategic objectives at this point? What are we trying to accomplish in this war? What is the goal? We're not talking about Britain. We're not talking about Israel. We're not talking about Australia. What is Ukraine? They're not an ally. They're not really even a friend of the United States. They're not in a crucial geographic location. 
There is no, as I've said, I've said this for 20 years, there's no strategic imperative in Ukraine, and yet here we are. What is our strategic objective right now? Now, I've talked to some of you, and I know I know some of you believe that by fighting, by paying for this, we are bleeding the Russians dry. And while I get that strategy, and while there's a part of me, as I said before, I'm a cold warrior that I kind of gnaw on that, I kind of like that, but in the end run, as a strategic objective, is it, a, is it sustainable? And B, is it really going to accomplish that mission? Moreover, if you keep pushing them that direction, where's it going to go? Number four, how much of our money, the tax dollars, we're going to send them another $400 million. Estimates have ranged. Nobody seems to know exactly how much has been sent so far, but estimates range between 50 and 100 billion. How much of that money has been stolen? Ukraine, whether you like it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, whether you like Zelensky or not, is one of the most corrupt nations on this planet, hands down. You, you can't argue that. It is. And I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat. I don't care if you're thinking that I'm taking shots at Hunter Biden. I'm not. Ukraine is a corrupt shithole. It has been, and it will continue to be. And all of that money that we're sending for humanitarian aid is subject to being stolen, folks. You can be certain of that. How much of your money is going to go to secret bank accounts? And the smart money on that one is on hundreds of millions, if not, in fact, billions. Number three is a question that I find fascinating because there is a socio-psychological issue with this war. I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s. When I was uh, 10 years old, the Vietnam War ended. I very vividly remember the announcement of the end of the war. It was, it was a fascinating thing to me. We were at uh, Camp Elephant Rock just outside of Monument, Colorado. There had been a big snowstorm. We were technically snowed in. Uh, for kids, it was great because we could go out and dig tunnels in the snow, and we did. Um, and it was a church retreat. And my father was one of the lay leaders of the church. He was the senior lay leader of the church at the time. And it was my father who stood up at the evening meeting that night and announced that the Vietnam War had ended, that President Nixon had announced that it was And you could feel. It was palpable. You could feel the reaction in the room. I was 10, and I remember being very happy about the war being over. Yay, now we can go dig tunnels in the snow. The socio-psychological element of this is that we have seen a complete reversal here. The people who were vehemently anti-Vietnam are vehemently pro-Ukraine, and vice versa. I put myself in that position. I was supportive at 10 years old of the war in Vietnam, but I am not supportive of this war in Ukraine. I'm just not. I'm sorry. I, I, I know that the idea here is we bleed the Russians, but I don't believe it. I don't believe that that's going to work. So the question is, when does support for the war begin to crater here in the United States? I have an answer for that. And the answer, unfortunately, is when American lives are being lost. But it's possible that there could be 
a buildup of anti-war right on the anti-war right, which again, I'm, I would put myself there at least for the moment, war skeptical platform. And it starts asking the question, how long does this go on? Russia's not going to quit, folks. Putin is not going to be assassinated or removed from office. There isn't going to be some revolt in Russia that's going to take over everything. So literally, as long as this goes on, there you go. Number two, how much money are we willing to give to Ukraine? How much money are we willing to spend on this war? We have already spent somewhere between 50 and 100 billion, I believe it's higher, on this war. At a time when economies are having problems here in the States, we have issues here in America, and I'm not sitting here pounding the America first drum, but what I'm saying is, when voters are being shuffled off in America for Ukraine, are we really going to continue to sacrifice ourselves? Because that's what we were told. We needed to sacrifice for, for the betterment of Ukraine. And now we're spending our tax dollars on their retirement funds, which doesn't have anything to do with the war. Ukraine, they announced the other day, has a $38 billion deficit, budget deficit. We're supposed to fill that up? Meanwhile, we're paying $7 for eggs and how much for gas? Oh, by the way, gas prices are going up again. Have you noticed this? I don't know about where you are, but here gas prices have gone up significantly since the November election. I have not seen one tweet, not one, from the White House saying, well, it's for a good cause. But I expect it to be, I expect that to be coming any day, right? Because we were getting tweets from the president for weeks leading up to the midterms about how gas prices are coming down. Oh, they're down a point, uh, another penny today for the American people. Now they're going up, and we're selling strategic reserves. But the number one question is, what's the end game of this war in Russia? If you believe that the end game is that Ukraine wins and Russia loses, that all sounds nice. But how do you make that happen? Because Ukraine is losing. With all the money we've put into it, they're still losing. They're still not able to drive the Russians out. It doesn't look like they're going to be able to force the Russians out. They're not going to force the Russians to give up. They're not going to go to the table. Russia cannot be defeated by Ukraine. Ukraine is not going to invade the Soviet Union and conquer conquer this evil empire. So what exactly is the end game? Where does this end? And what I'm afraid of is we've reached a point where fiction has become more true than truth. Once upon a time, guy wrote a book, and in that book he said, the war is not meant to be won. It's meant to be continuous. And this war, one year old already, doesn't show any signs of ending anytime soon. And it's going to suck in more money. It's like a black hole, just sucking in money, sucking in money, more money. And eventually, somebody's going to have to say, sorry, no more. 
And when that point comes, what happens then? What is the end game? I really feel like the war in Ukraine is not meant to be won by either side. It's meant to be continuous. surgery and again I don't know what the long term result of that's going to be I don't I don't even know what the short term result of that's going to be I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk for days weeks I just don't know so we're working on it but in the meantime I push on through the through the voice issues and the other problems as well on Wednesday night I was sitting at the synagogue and we were been taking this course about uh, Jewish, not literature, but texts. And it was a discussion of the different kinds of texts. It wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, we, we weren't delving into the pages of the Talmud trying to learn things, but, but we were learning about what the Talmud does and what the Tanakh does and what, what the Mishnah does and what the Medrash does. And, and this week was Kabbalah, which is one of those terms that as soon as you say, uh, people People go, ooh, Kabbalah, because it's mysticism. But even that is a a misnomer. It's not mysticism. It is, uh, unfortunately, it has been usurped by many in the popular culture. Uh, you see people with the red strings on their on their wrists, and they'll tell you that they're they're Kabbalists. No, they're not. They're they're frauds. They don't know what they're talking about, but. The word Kabbalah actually means that which was received. It means something is received by you. In other words, when it comes to Kabbalah, no one can sell it to you. Nobody, anybody that walks up to you and says, hey, here's, here's a red string to put on your, your wrist to protect you from this, that, or the other Kabbalah, uh, it can't be done because that's not how you receive Kabbalah. You have to be ready to receive it. You have to be able to receive it. You have to have a certain level of understanding, which is very high, um, and, and to understand these things. Now, that struck me because uh, I was sitting in Canada last week, as you know, and my wife and I went to a dinner. We, we decided to go out to dinner one night, the, the night we were there. And as I was telling Rod last week on WTF, twice in our marriage, we have splurged on a meal a dinner. 
once on her birthday, I think it was around 2012. Um, for those of you that are in the Central Valley area of California, we went to Ernie's in Manteca, and it was amazing. This time we were at the Q at the Empress Hotel in, in Victoria. And we just sort of said, we're just going to enjoy ourselves. We're not going to worry about, we're not going to look at the menu and go, boy, I'd really like to have that, but it's too much, so I'm going to have the chicken instead. We didn't do that. We said, get what you want. We're going to enjoy this. Now, this is intriguing because, to me, just a, it's not really a topic change, but stay with me here. I've always hated reality TV. Hate reality. I can't stand to watch it. And what I really hate more than anything, and I think that it's a bias because there's probably more of these reality TV shows than the other kinds, but I hate the cooking shows. And I hate them because, and I and I have said this, I have had this argument, I had this argument with my good friend Carl, who was a chef. Uh, they never make anything that people want to actually eat. I don't. I don't want to eat, you know, grilled whale bone with seal flippers and, you know, seaweed cracks. I don't want to eat that crap. I want to eat I want to eat a hamburger or a steak and I want potatoes and I want some veggies, particularly carrots. But these these meals that they make are so off the chart weird that it just frustrates me and I watch these cooking shows because my wife watches them. And they make these dinners that are just, you know, look, it's, I get it, but at the same time, it's a competition, but at the same time, nobody's going to eat that. And yet these people, and even if they were going to eat it, how are they going to pay for it? I mean, we're talking, you know, $70, $100 a plate here. Anyway, we sat down at the queue that night and I looked at the menu and I got to be honest with you, I was starting to panic. Because not only was the menu very, very fancy, but it was stuff that I thought to myself, I'm never going to eat that. I I just want a steak. I just want beef and potatoes and carrots and the likes of that. We ordered, we ordered an appetizer. And the appetizers were stuff that I, I don't eat mushrooms and I don't eat fish and calamari, but they had this bread thing on the, on the appetizer thing, and it was brown bread with honey butter. That's all it was. But of course they call it flax and farro with some kind of butter and homemade honey with, with honey pollen bits in it. And of course it turns out that they have their own beehive. They make their own honey there. And anyway, it was really good. And I thought, why don't they just call it brown bread with honey butter? Why they got to call it all this other stuff, but they don't. So anyway, it was fantastic. Meal comes, and in the middle of this meal, I have kind of an epiphany. There was something that I was ready, finally, to receive. Kabbalah? This was one of the best meals that I have ever eaten in my life, hands down. I don't know that it was the best meal I've ever eaten, but it was certainly in the top five, and I'm almost 60 years old a lot of meals. Plus, I'm fat, so I eat a lot more than most people. The meal was amazing. And when I was sitting there talking to my wife, and we were talking to June, the waitress, and Kelly, the maitre d', 
and I think his name was Steve, the food runner. What I realized as I was sitting there is that I had kind of made an assumption about these cooking shows and these kind of things that that people eat like this all the time, and they don't. Not everybody eats fancy every night. This isn't the NBA with, you know, load management BS, if you're following along with that argument. This is something special for people like us. As I looked around that room, I started realizing not everybody in this room eats here every night. They they eat here when it's, when there's a reason to. The people across from us were having their anniversary. The people over there were having a birthday. The people over there were having a business meeting. It took at least four people, not probably much more than that, to prepare that meal. Do you understand that? Four to steak, some potatoes that were fantastic, some carrots that were just amazing, some kind of vegetable that I still don't know what it was, but it was really good. Um, Four people, at least, it took to make that, probably more. And they put all that effort and all that skill and all that training into my plate, my wife's plate. She had a cod link fish that was, I don't eat fish, and it was good. These aren't competitions. These are real-world things where these people have gone to schools, they've gone to trainings, they've gone to all these things to learn how to do this so that they could put the best steak that they could possibly put on my tape, on my plate. I still don't like reality TV, but, but at least I kind of understand it a little bit better now when I look at these meals. I have received that this is, it brings pleasure to people. People like me who don't eat fancy very often can enjoy and tremendously enjoy these efforts, these skills that these folks have gained. And tomorrow night, it'll be somebody else. And the night after that, it'll be somebody else. And yet, they spent all that time and effort in learning these things, gathering this information and gathering these skills. And it made for a very enjoyable evening. And I felt like it was something that I had finally learned because maybe I was finally ready for it, kind of like Kabbalah. When you're finally ready for it, then it will be revealed to you. You will receive it. Maybe now I can watch some TV with my wife and not get really hyper about it. Maybe we can make plans. Hey, the next time we go to a fancy place in 10 years, maybe we got to think about something like that. Anyway, it was a great meal, and I felt like it was a pretty good lesson for me. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there, so don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly Live, I'm Dave Bowman. We'll see you next time for the Dave Bowman Show. On Demand Internet Radio.